Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Dharma Toolkit podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. I'm excited today because it's a slightly new format for our podcast. It feels like to boldly go where no one's gone before. We were doing them daily for a while. We're now into the next phase of the Dharma Toolkit as a response to the whole COVID-19 crisis. And one of the main features of that, of course, is the endlessly receding horizon. Nobody knows what's going to happen, which is sort of both terrifying and liberating in some ways. And we've been marking it by looking again at the things we're doing to respond to the crisis as a Dharma community. These podcasts have been all about connecting with the community, giving people an opportunity to hear stories and voices from all around the world, folk they may or may not know, but who nonetheless have some sort of relationship to them in Sangha, in community. And in some conversation with one of her good friends who's been on the podcast before, you'll meet her in a wee minute. We decided we'd try and do some podcasts that would be live, some live events that you could come to while they're happening. The raw excitement of the moment, as it were. And uh, we thought we'd do a little pilot today to test out and see if it works. So I'm very happy to say that today we're going to start a series of conversations, I hope. I guess touching on various different things. One is meditation. One is friendship and just what a life of practice in the context of friendship looks like. And there are two guests and the people who are going to help us do this little live experiment are Paramananda and Viveka. Paramananda and Viveka will do a much better job than I will of expressing their friendship. But I've known each of them for quite a long time and I've always been very touched by their connection and the mutual importance of that connection when they speak about each other, I suppose, as a kind of evocation of what it's like to have friends in a Dharma life. So I'm really thrilled that they've agreed to come along and just open up a space and invite us all into it. So first of all, I'd like to say hi to you, Viveka, over in California in San Francisco. Thanks for joining us so early in the morning. Hi. So Chandra Dasa knows my routine is whenever I meet him for these podcasts, I say, hold on, I'll be right there. I'm just going to go get my cup of coffee now. <laughs> so it's nice to be back and nice to be back with Paramount as well. And then zooming across America and then zooming across the Atlantic, we have Paramanda in West London rather than the West Coast. Paramanda has a long connection to the West Coast of the US. He helped found the San Francisco Buddhist Centre. Viveka got involved in our Dharma community through that centre. And Paramanda is sitting bathed in glorious light in his living room still. Hi, everybody. I never quite know what to say when I'm on the Zoom, but it's nice to be with you. I'm not really with you, am I? But anyway, it's nice to be here with John Dustin and Rebecca, even though they're not really here, they're somewhere else. So we're kind of connected in the ether, so that's an interesting phenomenon, yes. <laughs> none of us are here, none of us have any none substance. Of, no, none of us are really here, are we, anyway? And yet you are listening to us. So there you go, that's your horror mystery for today, people. So one of the things we're going to do with this is use a different format from normal. We're going to have some conversation that will emerge, but we want to structure it a little bit. So we're going to begin each of these episodes with a poem read by either Paramananda or Viveka. And then we'll have some sharing around that of practice and perspectives, opening up the space. And then we're going to finish each episode with a short practice so that it is a bit more grounded in experience, even if none of us are really here. So Paramananda, I think you've got a poem for us today to start us off. I have, yeah. I suppose the first thing I'd like to say, actually, before I recite the poem is that these days, unfortunately, I'm severely partially sighted, so I can't actually read anything. I've been doing this, I think, I don't know, for maybe 15 years now. I memorise these poems that I use 
quite a lot in my teaching. But one thing I've realised about memorising poems is that when you go back and check them against the original text, they're nearly always slightly imperfect, which I quite like. You sort of remember them in a slightly different way, so they might be slightly imperfect. Anyway, this is the James Baldwin poem, and this seems quite poignant and potent in this particular time we find ourselves in. So this is For Nothing Is Fixed by James Baldwin. For nothing is fixed forever, forever, forever. It is not fixed. The earth is always shifting. The light is always changing. The sea does not cease to grind down rock. Generations do not cease to be born. And we are responsible to them because we are the only witnesses that they have. The sea rises, the light fades. Lovers cling to each other and children cling to us. The moment we cease to hold one another, the moment we break faith with each other, the sea engulfs it and the light goes out. For me, it feels a very poignant poem, this need for holding and faith in this particular period, where, of course, actually, I don't know how it is. The only person I've been scared of is my son, who's been coming around fairly regularly and helping me. He's fantastic. But other than that, I've had no real contact with people. I say I've had no real contact with people. Of course, I have been engaging in a fair bit of online teaching and Zooming. And there's a kind of contact there. And probably like a lot of people, in some ways, I have more contact with people than I often do happen. I've certainly been on the phone a lot more to people and maybe emailing a lot more and that's a whole different way of being in touch. I personally miss the somatic contact with people. That might be something we go on to. I think one of the things we wanted to look at is what it's like teaching in this situation. So maybe we'll go on to this, the somatic nature of teaching and what happens to that when it's done in this virtual context? Well, thanks for that, Paramana. The poem was particularly moving to me this week. As in the U.S. context, many people have been distressed about the story of a young Black man, Ahmed Arbery, in Georgia, who was out for a run in these days and crossed into a different neighborhood adjacent to his home. and was shot. 
already in the United States, there has been for many years now a renewal of, I would say, a movement that James Baldwin is himself very critical in. Remembering the consciousness behind the poem you just read, which I feel is really important. You know, the consciousness of a man who was incredibly outspoken in his time and spoke truth to power about the truth of racism in our country. Yeah. It was very provocative. And yeah, you know, he practiced what he preached. When I hear the poem, it's very stirring. You know, this bearing witness, the power of bearing witness and doing so honestly and with great heart. You know, it's just uh, really beautiful in that poem. And as I'm speaking now, the skies just started raining here. Seems appropriate somehow. <laughs> I'm hearing the rain come down. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, Baldwin is such an interesting character because, of course, it wasn't just racism, was it? It was also sexuality, class, you know. He had an amazing range of interests. He had things to say about the whole range. And it's very active in that way. Yeah, you'd say in that way, it's very full-bodied presence, yeah, because he included his sexuality and what he oh, would yeah. speak to and how he showed up. He brought that with him. Yeah, he brought his body and his bodily expression of love and joy with him. Yeah. So that does speak to me, because even in the beginning, he said, well, we're together in some way, aren't we? And I miss being with people in an embodied way that has become more difficult these days. But I have been really with presence. The question of presence really maybe underpins a lot for me these days. You know, it's almost a deeper inquiry and practice of what that means in these changed circumstances. A renewed appreciation for it and how to access it even now, even more so now, maybe it's more important to be intentional about it or really deeply rooted in it, presence with each other. It's very interesting for me because our culture in general is, I feel, becoming increasingly visual. And as our culture becomes increasingly visual, my personal world has become increasingly less visual. <laughs> so I'm going in the opposite direction. And the culture, you know, and I think for some people, what's going on now, us here talking, I can't actually see the screen, so I'm not got any visuals, so it's just the sound. But I think for a lot of people, it, it's quite normal now that they're inhabiting this sort of on screen visual world. And I suppose what I find very interesting and also quite Challenging, I don't know if that's the right word, really. I don't know if I find it challenging. I'm slightly mystifying what's going on. Is, is that when I sit in a room with people, as a teacher, when I sit in a room with people, I feel energetically connected to them. And I feel like that happens through my body. You know, it's a physical, it's the, the physical experience. It's, it's not a psychic experience primarily, it's a physical experience. It's a sort of experience of resonance with people. And I can get little glimpses of that, little fragments of that, when I'm doing work over a video channel, you know, or I'm talking to you now, I can feel that there's something also not there, isn't there? There's something not there, you know, something that, well, for me anyway, that's not there or it's harder to access. It's a different type of imagination, which is ill-suited. Well, I shouldn't be saying this, should I, because I'm doing this. In a way, I'm just interested in how it works for people. 
Yeah, I like that you invoked the word imagination when it comes to, yeah, to actually connect, the act of connection, not only physically or visually being arranged (laughs) together. (laughs) Yeah, something that struck me, because I do a lot of work trying to help people connect across divides, I do a lot of work in situations with high conflict where people are having a hard time connecting and being present with each other. Sometimes that's around work where we're trying to heal racism in a community of people that really wishes to be connected, to be in common purpose, but the unaddressed distance of unexamined racism, or as you mentioned before, even the other things that divide us in lived experience and embodiment, like around sexual orientation, these kinds of things. Those kinds of differences and distances are often in a room when I'm with people. Mm-hmm. I have had to learn the skill of first recognizing that just because we're together doesn't mean we're together. Just because we're physically together doesn't mean we're actually vibing together. I've started using the phrase, I think quite an old one about, are we vibing? Are we together? I think just honestly recognizing that when we're physically together doesn't mean that actually all bodies are really able to be there in the same way has been a a huge teaching for me. Actually, this relates to how I started to teach meditation. In the last retreat I led, that was longer for a bunch of order members in our community. So people with quite deep practices in our community. We had three weeks together in a mountain in Spain. And I found myself, surprisingly, this was very emergent, but because our own community, our own Buddhist community has been grappling with issues of power and belonging and things that I suppose any, hopefully any communities will really grapple with. I was surprised to find myself focusing less on, let's say, meditation technique, let's say, and more on just what it was like to be there together. You're actually kind of pulling one more curtain away from the act of just coming into space together and what happens with our bodies and How can we actually co-create a space that everyone is genuinely able to be welcome? Yeah, to be welcome with others, to be welcoming others, you know, even breaking down. I mean, this language is hard. It's not about others, self and other, we know. But there is something about the beautifulness of our differentiation where we can actually welcome each other fully. It's such a fantastically interesting area, all of it, isn't it? Because... On the one hand, we've got identity, and we're living in a time where identity seems to be becoming more and more important for people. And yet we're in this tradition that, in a way, is all about dissolving identity or fixed identity. And so we're working with this kind of tension where actually there seems to be this process where people actually have to first kind of come into their identity before they can start to let that loosen again. We have to find ourselves before we can lose ourselves again on a deeper level. And I suppose what I find so interesting about being on retreat with other people or even just being in a room with other people teaching meditation is that on what level like you were saying, you know, being together doesn't necessarily mean you're vibing together. I suppose what I'm interested in is on what frequency of existence, if you like, on what vibration are we together? We might not be together politically or socially, but on some level, if we strip it right down, 
We're all breathing oxygen, aren't we? We've all got oxygen going through our blood on the level of life. Of course, we all are participating. I think that's that boardroom quote, not that I rather liked it, but well, nothing is fixed, but actually, and of course, this is totally basic Buddhism, isn't it? Everything is connected. We are all together on some level. And how do we find that vibrational level without denying the disharmony or the levels that we don't like? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a both and or one of those wonderful paradoxes which we need to live into versus have an aversion to. I mean, I think where Buddhism gets into trouble is where in not really wanting to relate to the complexity of the many frequencies or vibrations of life, you know, which we can call just sensation in the body. Maybe one way we could describe it is just the felt, (laughs) the amazingly complex felt experience of life. As you say, we're not trying to dim that or suppress that. To me, this is the entire practice I've always had. And we have some of it in Buddhism to realize that everything's always changing. In some way, there's something that is completely the same about all of us in the deepest way. And at the same time, there's something beautifully, completely different about not only us, but every flashing ephemeral moment that can be known or experienced, whether that we call it a person, uh, whatever we call it, whether we call that a flower, whether we call that a death, whatever we call it, that all that flashing phenomenon is also completely ungraspable and unique and all of that's true and we're living into all of that or learning how to. It all gets rather simple. All the complexity gets kind of simple when you come to what does it feel like in the body, not just as a set of technical sensations, but something a bit more, dare I say, poetic. (laughs) But I don't know, this seems to be the realm of your deep exploration, Paramanda, which is something maybe that speaks to our friendship too. I think I through meeting you. Yeah, I think I met someone quite important who encouraged that. And especially for me coming from an identity where a training, where in my culture, some of the ability to witness multiple generations and the incredible rise and fall of what my Chinese ancestors have lived through, there's a kind of deep, deep reservation when it comes to emotions. You know, of course, the lie would be, you know, the terrible stereotype would be that Chinese people are not emotional, which some people sometimes say from a dominant culture view. But I would say that the superpower of my training was more to contain that emotion and maybe maybe get very good at saying, okay, or no, no, thank you. You're not going to be very important right now. And I really appreciate that and that there's a lot of perspective I learned or the ability to have kind of a long, long view. But I suppose one thing I was looking for when I came to meditation and also when I realized meeting you was significant was I wanted more vulnerability to be available in how I was in myself and how I related to other people. And I know that other people wanted that from me too, because of the kinds of complaints I would sometimes get. Yeah. So there's something about meeting you and what you and what you have been consistently interested in or lifting up as important for human beings with the body. So yeah. One of the questions I want to ask was when I met you, how old were you roughly when you came to California? And I was wondering how those themes became more alive for you then, because you were really at that time becoming more of a meditation teacher. I suppose you had been already, but you were really, you know, just going for it or really, really just spending a lot of time with people around meditation. Well, I was born in 55. 
My time in America more or less coincided with Bill Clinton's two presidencies. Yeah, you were in your mid-30s, I would say, yeah? At 36, 37, I think. You were starting to write, you ended up writing your first book around that time. Yeah, so I was just curious about what was going on for you at that time when you were really giving voice to much of this and beginning to write about it, let's say, write a book. Before I got involved with Buddhism, I was a psychiatric social worker, but I got quite disillusioned with the whole sort of linguistic, I mean, I love words actually, but the whole therapeutic model in that largely didn't include the body. And so when I came to Buddhism, when I came to meditation, Buddhist meditation, I was already very interested in the body, the sort of physicality of being, you know. I've always found that sort of vital, really central, you know. I've always felt, and I do still feel this, I don't want to go into a sort of doctrinal thing about this, but, you know, this idea that self is primarily viewed never made any sense to me. To me, myself is primarily a feeling, you know, it's a feeling of self. You know, I think we have a feeling of self. It's not an idea. I think ideas are not unimportant, but they're kind of tertiary, aren't they? They come on the basis of the physicality of, you know, we exist. Mm. I've always been very resistant to this idea of splitting spirit and body, I suppose. I've always wanted this embodied. I suppose the poetics for me, if you take something like that bordering poem, it's got a lot of body to it. You know, good poetry, I think, nearly always has a physicality to it. And I think meditation should always have a physicality to it. It's so interesting what you were saying before, because I think a lot of people get into meditation because actually they want to disappear. They want to disappear into their own little Idaho, you know, their own world. They're not getting into meditation because they want to be in relationship with others in the world. Disappearing act, albeit maybe into so-called higher states or higher realms, it just doesn't interest me. I'm not saying it's wrong or right, it just never interests me. Hillman quotes Wallace Stevens often, doesn't he, where he says, the way through the world is harder to find than the way beyond it. And I've never really been interested in the way beyond the world. If I think of you and your journey since I've known you, it's really interesting because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but what seems to have happened to me is that as you've developed spiritually, what's come out of that is a deepening sense of interest in the culture you find yourself in, in the political and social culture that you find yourself living in, You've become more and more interested in the world in this sense of trying to find a way through the world, not only for yourself, but for others in a kind of act of solidarity of others. And so emotionally, I don't know how it relates to what you were saying before about your Chinese heritage. Emotionally, it seems to me that your wish for solidarity with other people has become more and more explicit, more and more kind of activated. It is a classical Zen thing, isn't it? Return to the marketplace with bliss bestowing hands. You know, what's the point of this practice that we're doing? If we don't come back, you know, maybe we need time out of the world, time 
consolidate in a way, but what's the point of all that if we don't come back into the world somehow? When I think of your history, what your growth and what's going on, that seems to come out more and more. Why I started is a little bit different for me because I was very political when I was young, you know, teenager in my early 20s. I remain political, but in a slightly different way, I think. Or maybe I've gone from being political to being poetic. You know, I think poetic is a kind of political act as well. That's another story. (laughs) (laughs) I was really vibing with you. I was really with you when you were talking about what's the point in the image of returning to the marketplace with bliss bestowing hands. What is the point of practice? The word solidarity in that really also relates and to my curiosity about meditation these days and I feel like we share this is is about meditation as a profoundly relational act or the awakening being profoundly relational you know yeah I find myself asking myself but also asking my students what are you here for what are you here for why are you in this world I don't really know an answer to that, but I, I think to find our longing, and for most people, I think that longing is somehow something to do with connection, connection with the world somehow, the animal mondo, the soul of the world, the spirit of the world, the soul of the spirit of the world. And maybe more, even more so now, this pandemic has revealed something that is in the Baldwin poem very much so about the fleetingness of any one life, you know, and to find meaning in it and on a larger picture of solidarity. And we have a responsibility. Generations do not cease to be born. And somehow we've got a responsibility to them. I I find that very interesting. But we've got a responsibility to all the people that have gone before us. And all the people that are going to come after us. Because at this moment in time, we are the witnesses, aren't we? We're the witnesses to the history, human history, and to its future in this moment. I don't even know what I mean by that much. But it seems <laughs> it significant to me. It seems important to me. That's you know? important. One thing I have been doing. I have had a lot of contact with people in this past few months while people have been moving about less and having more video communication with each other. I have this very fortunate role to be in what's called like a coaching relationship with some leaders. So I'm in a coaching relationship with a number of leaders who are totally committed to a transformed, just world of right relationship, shifting the ways in which we exploit each other and how we live together. Some of them are a bit younger than me now. Having known each other over the years, I've suddenly become 52. (laughs) I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And I'm with these younger folks that are, you know, maybe in their early 30s or 40s, and they are freaking prophetic. It's so beautiful. Like, I don't want to cry right now, you know, but the, um, upon the shoulders of their movement ancestors, they dare to see even further you know, that I ever dared to see. It's really beautiful. Um, And I feel like I'm so present with them because I know that they matter. And I feel that, I've talked to other coaches about this right now. It's a very potentially sacred space for these leaders. 
Because in the midst of doing so much or being so much for so many people and, and exercising the imagination, you know, imagine talking to a black man, the imagination he has to have in his body to feel so intimately what it was, what it's like to imagine a black body running and being killed and speaking to a leader who's grieving that and still, he needs to be able to grieve that, but still be there for his family and his community and have an imagination of a life where he can come home to his family every night. And uh, just bearing witness to him, it feels so important, you know, it feels so important. And it, the space feels quite sacred that these folks can show up and be with the fullness of their experience. The pact, a coaching pact is one where the coach pledges complete and honest presence with somebody. Anyway, so yeah, what you're saying, I feel quite strongly. Well, this is it, isn't it? This comes back to this embodiment, doesn't it? Because when I'm hearing you talking there, you know, it's very obvious that you're feeling it very deeply. You're feeling it in the body, aren't you? You're feeling it on a cellular level. I suppose to bring that back to our role as meditation teachers, I think a lot of what we're trying to do as meditation teachers is to get people to really remember their body, to come back more strongly into the physicality of experience because that's where our depth of resonance with each other is a felt embodied thing. When you're talking about this work you're doing as a mentor, it's very clear that you have this resonance with people, a physical resonance, is it not? Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you in this moment because I feel the way to be present is to unlearn this kind of impassive, yeah. <laughs> impassive shell, you know, social shell. And well, even on the screen to let the emotion come forth, you know, mm. to, to let people know I'm feeling, I'm feeling you right now. I'm here and I'm feeling this, which is different than I know. I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be them, but I can feel no. the gravitas. They're here. I sense them. I can show them that. I feel like showing is more important than telling. As you say, the ideas come after. Well, what a thing, isn't it? If you or me as a teacher can be in that role and be vulnerable, that is so encouraging to other people. Our vulnerability is our greatest gift we've got for other people. I feel that as a teacher, you know. So the ability to be vulnerable, but actually within that vulnerability to hold ground, to keep your ground, and that vulnerability doesn't mean collapsing. There's a strength to that vulnerability. And that empowers, I don't like these words, I empower, but that gives other people permission or, again, okay, I don't like these terms, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, maybe it breaks a kind of toxic power modeling. You know, that impassivity can be a way of holding a kind of toxic power. Yeah. yeah it's like being with, deeply being with each other. You know, I was talking to another Buddhist teacher about Buddhist terms, which try to convey this sacred opening to reality, the fuller reality that the Baldwin poem describes. And there's traditional words, like it's so hard to explain that it's a suchness. It's just, it's just such, suchness. <laughs> but I was saying, oh, I wonder why we don't say withness, you know, being with, it's just withness. It's just a strong feeling of being with. 
that's another way to describe it. And that's more these days, more than anything, how I mm. feel the reality of our situation. Yeah. I was obviously moved listening to you there, Viveka, and this suggestion about being with, withness, that idea. I was remembering listening to a Dharma talk by the person who ordained me, just evoking compassion and the word anukampa. It's often translated in the Tibetan tradition as compassion, meaning to sort of vibrate with, like you have to vibrate mm-hmm. with people if you're going to, you tremble with them, you shake with them, if you're going to really feel them and have a compassionate response. The image that came to mind with James Baldwin was, like many people, I sort of had a passing connection to Baldwin, but I watched the documentary about him that was made a couple of years ago, I'm Not Your Negro. Oh, God, it's a strong film. And what particularly struck me, going back to your conversation at the start, Paramount, was this, the visual aspect of it. You know, I'd read Baldwin, uh, so I'd read his words for myself in my own voice or internal voice. I'd heard him read, because he's quite famously a very beautiful reader of his own work. But watching him on screen, and particularly this clip of him in the famous debate with William F. Buckley Jr., which I think is actually called In the Firing Line or something like that. You know, it's like, and the, the sort of just sheer physical bodily somatic courage of Baldwin hanging out there in the kind of epicenter of the worst of the times in the mid 60s I'd guess these days it's like the heart of privilege of a certain kind and you can see like he's so physically present but he's vulnerable but he's also not intimidated and he's completely passionate and in touch with his emotions but he's not overwhelmed and he is just speaking and he's not breaking connection with Buckley Jr. And he's not breaking connection with the audience, but he is just saying what needs to be said. And I remember actually finding it quite shocking and watching it, just thinking, oh my goodness, this is... I started watching this documentary and within 10 minutes I was completely electrified by something that was transmitting even through all those years of film. And there's something about that kind of space in the poem and that kind of space you're talking about with meditation, so vulnerability and the strength where you are just kind of shaking with people and you're not afraid of it. It's like beautiful. So I don't know if you want to read the poem for us again, just to take us into the space of meditation. That seems like the way in and out of the conversation side of it. Well, thank you. That's lovely. Your reflections on Baldwin. For Nothing is Fixed by James Baldwin. For nothing is fixed forever, forever, forever. It is not fixed. The earth is always shifting. The light is always changing. The sea does not cease to grind down rock. Generations do not cease to be born. And we are responsible to them because we are the only witnesses they have. The sea rises. The light fades. Lovers cling to each other and children cling to us. The moment we cease to hold one another, the moment 
we break faith with each other. The sea engulfs it. The light goes out. Let's close just taking the space to feel that trembling in this body. and imagining the body of the world. And gone.